0: And if you have a Bible, I want you to make your way to the New Testament book, 1 Thessalonians. As we wrap up this book, we've been traveling through. Um, I, I taught this book uh, 10 years ago, and I taught it in two weeks. This will be two months today, so it's, uh, we've, we've talked about a few more things. Have you found it to be interesting so far? Good, good. I think you're going to find today interesting also. This is going to be the wrap-up to the book And, uh, you'll recall from previous studies that the Apostle Paul comes to this town of Mass, uh, of, Thessalonica. It's in the area of Macedonia. We would say northern Greece. He comes there uh, through a very difficult time. He ministers for three weeks. A church has started. Persecution begins. He has to leave the town. About six months later, he wants to find out what's going on. So he finds out what's going on in this town that he hasn't been able to go back to. And once he finds out, he begins to write a letter back. And we've been studying the letter that Paul has written back. And we come to the end of the book. He's talked about a number of things. He's talked about end times. He's talked about. Persecution, difficulty. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we wrap up this book, we're going to talk about what we call the gospel life. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have a church family? We'll see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. As we get into this, I want to highlight a couple of things. We left off last week in verse 11. But as we jump into this, I want you to look at verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to underline a couple of words as we just travel through this passage. First of all, in verse 12, he says, We we request of you brethren, and I want you to underline the word brethren. And then you go down to verse 14, and in verse 14 he says, We urge you brethren, underline the word brethren. Then I want you to go to verse 25, and in verse 25, he says, brethren, I want you to underline that word. And then in verse 26, he says, greet all the brethren, underline that. And then in verse 27, he says, I adjure you by the Lord that you have this read to all the, uh, to all the brethren, underline that. Now, one other thing I need to make, it's sort of an announcement, but I've lost my reading glasses this week. And so um, some of these words look like little fuzzy animals. And so if I read the wrong word or I make up a word, you just go with it, okay? So, so we'll get through it. So if I'm stuttering up here, that's part of the reason why. I'd like to blame it on my kids, and uh, it, could be, it could be anything. But I've learned in my life that the fastest way to find my glasses is to go buy a new pair. Then they will, am I the only one? Then they magically reappear. So anyway, so you know that. So Paul is here in this passage. He has mentioned the word brethren several times. Through this book, when Paul describes the relationships within the church, you'll notice at times when he describes it, it's always like a family. For instance, notice these, these verses I put on your outline. He says in, in uh, chapter two, he said, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. And then in the same chapter two, he says, exhorting and encouraging each one of you as a father. So Paul's point in this, as we get into this, and you want to write this down, is, is that the church is a family. And Paul always describes the relationships within the church in terms of family. He never describes the relationships within the church as as being like, you know, I was a general among you and you were all privates. He doesn't say that. Every time he describes the relationship, it's always a family relationship. Now today, Paul is going to be describing and talking about what those relationships look like within the church as as far as the congregation. And, And just as you have a family that you're part of. You know, up and down your street, there's a number of families, but you're part of a specific family. And in the same way that you're part of a specific family, you need to be part of a specific church family. And we're going to find some things that Paul says today that if you're not part of a specific church family, you simply cannot do what Paul says in this passage, When my children were born, they were all born as part of the human family, but they've done a lot better since coming home to one family. Do you agree? And and so in the same way, you know, they're not children, they're, they're not orphans running up and down the street, this family, that family, they have their church family, and we're going to see today that Paul's going to be talking about a specific church family, and some of the things that he's going to say, unless you have that church family, you simply cannot do. And here is what we find in in church. And this isn't uh, nothing with me. It's just every pastor knows knows this that there are people who come to your church, and some people are attenders. They're not really they're, they're believers, but they're just attenders. And um, some people they're, they're members. You know, this is this is it for them. And I, and I want to just describe the difference, and we'll talk about this. First of all, when somebody's just attending a church, they, they say things like, and I want you to write this down. They'll say things like, "That's the church I go to." That's the church I go to. I go to that church. I go to that church where when somebody is a member, you know, they've tapped in, their wording is very different. They'll say things like, that's my church, that's my church. And there's that sense of belonging, there's that sense of responsibility, and Paul describes the relationships within a church as being like a family. And we'll talk about that as we go. But but imagine, um, as as you know, we've got a bunch of kids in our family, And if I were to say something like you come up and you're in a conversation with me and you look over and you see Cheryl and I go, you see uh, Cheryl over there and all the kids, that's the family I go to. I go to that family. When when I'm ready to do family, I go to that family. Uh, You know, you would say, that's a little weird, Dan. You know, you don't go to that family. That is your family. That's my family. And we all get that. And Paul describes the church in the same way. And, and, And just like you have families up and down your street, And it's a family relationship that each family has, but each family has their own family, and you're part of a specific family. So imagine if I were to come to you today, and I were to say, you know, um, when uh, I go to that family, you know, I I go to this family because there are certain benefits that I get uh, from being part of this family, but whenever I want this benefit, I go to this family over here, and that, you know, I go to that family. And then, uh, you know, on certain nights I go to this family and I, I, I go to different families. You'd look on you and say, uh, Dan, that's a little weird. What you, first of all, you don't go to family. And why are you going to two or three families? What's, what's going on there? Well, and for those of you who've ever had to walk through maintaining two families, you know, you, you've married, divorced, you have some kids over here, you have some kids over here. At the very best, at the very best, it's always frustrating, isn't it? And in the same way, God calls you. You're part of God's family when you become a believer, but you need to have a specific family that you tap into. Again, some of the things that we're going to talk about today, you simply will not be able to do if you don't have that specific family. And we'll talk about that. Here's why I'm saying this with your membership or or with your uh, connection card today. On July 20th, Friday night, July 20th, we are going to have what we call a membership class. A membership class at Calvary is simply this. What does it mean to make Calvary my church home? What, what does that mean? I want you to take the next step in your commitment to the Lord and your commitment to a local body. If you haven't been, you need to come to the membership class. Now, we're doing things a little bit different than we were even doing it a couple of months ago where it's, it's much more relational. And uh, I promise you by the end of that evening, you're going to get to know... A number of people so that when you come to church, you're going to really feel like this is my church because I know some people. We're actually going back and inviting some people, some of you who've been through the class before because we've changed some things, we want you to come back, I think you'll like it much more. So if you've not been, you need to write the word membership on your connection card and Friday, July 20th, you need to be here and we'll be contacting you, okay? No, 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 like you mean it, you got to humor me here, okay? You stand up in here and do this. All right, so let's go. So that's the intro to what we're going to talk about because the truth is if you're not part of a local church, you cannot live in obedience to what Paul is going to teach here today. So we'll look at that as we go. So the church is a family. So Paul is now going to lay, uh, lay out for us how do you live as a believer? How do you be part of this family? And Paul's going to talk about three different relationships. The first relationship is the congregation to the pastor. The second one will be people who are part of the congregation how do you relate to one another and then the third part of this is what do we do when we come to church and how do we relate there so we got to zoom through some of this we left off last time in verse 11 in verse 11 paul says therefore now most of your bibles will say therefore when it says therefore it means based upon everything i've told you up to this point here's what you do and paul's going to talk about that today Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And now Paul says, and let me tell you how that works in three different relationships. The first relationship we're going to say is towards the pastor or toward the, toward the leadership team, however they might say that, in, in any particular church. He says, but we, verse 12 Request of you brethren, so this is the brethren, if you're a believer here today, this is your church home, then you are the brethren, part of this church, he says, that you appreciate those who diligently labor, underline the word labor, among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another. I'll come back to that last phrase. But Paul says, as it it relates to this, he says, you know, esteem those who give you instruction, those who are in leadership in the church, those who are teaching the Bible, teaching and preaching. And he says, those who labor. Now that word labor is very interesting because um, that word, I put it on your outline, kopeia, probably butchering the pronunciation, means to feel fatigued by implication to work hard. But, but, What's also interesting about that word is that whenever people would talk about working like on a farm, that would be the word that they would use. For instance, you'll see there on your outline, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, the husbandman that laboreth, and it's that same uh, word in the original language, he, he says, must be the part, first partaker of the fruits. And, and so Paul likens this type of working to the type of work that you do on a farm. Now, you might not know this, and I'd prefer that it doesn't go outside of this room, but we're all friends here, right? When I was in high school, I was the president in my senior year of the Miami chapter of Future Farmers of America. just want you to know that, all right? I don't laugh at your accomplishments, okay? And here's what I learned about farming. As it relates to farming, the work's never done. It's never done. There's always something to do. And those of you who grew up on a farm you'll know it's not like you get to the end of the day. There's still more to do. In the ministry, there's always something to do. There's a number of emails for theological questions, there's counseling, you're there in people's uh, deepest, darkest times of their life, they're really going through it, you're there at the happy times, there's the preparation of the teaching, there's the management, the organization of the church, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff all the time. And and it's one of those things that, that, you know, the work is never done, and And yet you and I live in a world today that erodes what we might say the esteem of being a pastor. I think much of that happens because of the media that we watch. For instance, I I think you'll agree with me that you will never see a movie or TV show currently that will ever portray a pastor as somebody who's just a normal person, loves the Lord, loves people. You, You never see that. You don't even see that in Christian movies. For those of you who watch the Left Behind series, anybody watch the Left Behind series? First movie, who's the first person you see? The pastor. What do we know about him? He's not saved. He's not saved. Every movie, even if it's Christian, portrays the pastor as grumpy, angry, and we watch that, and it subtly erodes what God the, the truth of what it means to be in the ministry. I'm sure there's people who are out there like that, but most of us in the ministry, we just love Jesus, we love people, we love his word, we're just trying to do the very very best that we can. So Paul says, make sure that you're esteeming them, don't be like the world who erodes the picture of what it means to be that person who, who, who teaches. And it says to appreciate them. Can we just savor that for a minute? Just, just. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say that you appreciate the ministry here at Calvary? Good. Okay, good, good. Great. Now, the best thing that you can do to appreciate the ministry here or at any church is to simply fund the ministry. Fund the ministry. Because of the way that we do things at at, at Calvary, you know, you come in here and We put boxes in the back of the church. And and typically what happens is somebody comes to Calvary and they come up and say, you know, we just love your church. We love the teaching. You know what we love about your church? You don't talk about money. You don't take an offering. You just put boxes in the back. We love that because we were at a church and all money, 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 always talking about money, just talking about money. And we are so glad to be here where you don't talk about money. Here's the difference between us and that church. Um, They can pay their bills and they can launch out and do things. And they can have programs that we'd love to have uh, because we don't talk about it week after week after week. Sometimes it can convey that that's not part of the responsibility or it's not really a need. I don't know if you know this, but every church in America, when you buy, you, know, you build a church, there's always costs associated with that. When we built this building, there's a mortgage that's associated with this. The mortgage on this building is $27,000 every month. When we get into the summertime, our electric bill is about $3,000 a month. When you factor in the insurances that we're required to have on the buildings, the custodial uh, things that we need to do, the upkeep of the building, we budget $40,000 a month just so that we can have a place to go to church. On top of that, there's staff. And at Calvary, we run our staff close to 30% of our operating budget Most churches in America run at about 50% of the operating budget. We're about 30%. Then we have missionaries that we support around the world, and that's to the tune of thousands upon thousands of dollars a month. Then there's the ministries that we do. It takes all of $120,000 a month just to keep the doors open. Then on top of that, there are the other unexpected things that tend to pop up. Maybe you've been coming to church and you've seen how they're bringing water and sewer out to the uh, from the town out to the church. Well, this week the bill was due for the sewer. Now the water comes on the annual tax bill. We don't pay the tax, but we have to pay the ta- uh, the assessments and we have to pay the garbage and all that, but we don't pay the tax. But so the water goes on that bill, but the sewer to hook up they required every everybody in the complex write a one time check. So this week, in addition to the amount that it costs to operate the church. We had to write that check. You know what that check was for? $33,000. $33,000. When we go forward on the property over here, just to take our paperwork in and say, would you guys look at this and then tell us everything you don't like about it? Um, That's $15,000. So those are the costs that are involved in just doing the ministry. And you know how we do it? You know how we do it? We do it because God's people put God first in their finances. And it's that way in every single church. Wherever you go to church, you need to put God first in your finances because that's the way the church operates. It's what the Bible teaches. Make sense? So the best thing you can do at any church to appreciate the ministry is simply to fund the ministry. Be a communer, not just a consumer of the ministry. So participate in that. Where am I? So towards the pastors. So then he closes that last little line. I love this line. He says, you know, appreciate the pastors, uh, uh, those who teach. But then he says in in, uh, verse 13, the very last line, as he's talking about the relationship to the pastor, Paul just stops and he says, I love this. He goes, could you just live in peace with one another? The, underline that little, little part there um, as it relates to that. You, you'll find that, that um, you know, as in the ministry, one of the difficult things is we can't always share everything that we know, especially as it comes to people, especially as it comes to certain changes going on. And sometimes people will assess, they will um, assume things that they don't really have a lot of understanding on. And, and Paul knows that because he was in the ministry. So he tells the brethren, Could you live at peace? Could you trust when you don't understand that maybe they're praying, maybe they're seeking the Lord, maybe there's some details that you might not be aware of? So that's the first thing, towards the pastor. But then he says, the next section of this, beyond the pastors, he goes into the section uh, toward each other. How do we, as the congregation, how do we relate to one another? In verse uh, verse 14, he says, he says, we urge you, brethren. Now, you've underlined the word brethren, but just so that you know, this is writing to the congregation. This is not to the pastor what you're to do. This is to the brethren. That would be those who are part of the, the local church. He says to, number one, admonish the unruly, two, encourage the faint-hearted, and three, help the weak. So when, when you look at this, this part is to the brethren. This is how we, we relate to one another. The things that we're going to talk about you can't do unless you have a church home that that you're able to do these things because you just don't do this to believers in general. We'll talk about that as we go. The first thing that he says is you need to admonish the unruly, however your your Bible says that, admonish the unruly. Unruly people in the congregation are those who would be disruptive, they would be divisive, or, or they would be just disorderly. And... In Second Thessalonians, when Paul writes this, because apparently they don't get it in this first letter, he calls them out and he calls them busybodies. As a matter of fact, there on your your outline, he says, "For we," and he'll say this in Second Thessalonians. He'll say. For we hear that some of you are leading undisciplined lives. Uh, you're doing no work at all. You're acting like busybodies. He says, now such persons we command, this is not a suggestion, we command in the, and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Now, a busybody is somebody who's within the church and they're in everybody's business. They're not really taking care of their own business, but they're you know gossiping about other people and what's going on in their lives. And if you've been around church for more than 10 or 15 minutes, you've encountered a busybody. Oh, like I'm the only person who's encountered this. We all have. So you have. You haven't? Could it be because you're the busybody? No. So here's what he says. He says, so brethren, here's what you need to do. You, you need to admonish them. Now the word admonish them, I put that in the original language because its definition is a little bit different than in the English. And the original language, it says to caution or reprove gently. You kind of need to, you know, gently reprove them to bring them back into that place where they're operating the way that the Lord would have them operate within the body. Now, here's what this means. You'll write this down. Lovingly, this is to the brethren, you need to have the hard conversations with the spiritually disobedient. Hard conversations with the spiritually disobedient. If you haven't been in a situation where you've had to have that hard conversation with somebody who's in the church, but they're not really at that place, they're acting like busybodies, they're living a life that would be undisciplined, not a life that, that's uh, honoring to the Lord, and you've not had to have that conversation. Here's why. You're not far enough into the church to have that conversation because you've never really committed and and you're not really connected enough with other believers where you... they have that conversation with you and you have that conversation with them. The only way you can fulfill that is if you have that church home that you are tapped in and connected with. So that's the first thing. Then he says, he goes on and he says, confront the spiritually disobedient, but then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted, if you have the NIV translation, it's going to say the timid. If you have the King James Version, it's going to say the feeble-minded every commentator will say this is one of those words that nobody gets right in the, in the uh, translation. The word there is a compound word in the original language, and it just means small-souled. The idea, allagos there in your outline just means and, uh, small, and psyche uh, just means the soul. So they're, they're a s- small-souled. And commentators will say that they're small-souled in the sense that uh, they're, they're struggling with discouragement. So write that down. They're struggling with discouragement. You'll remember that this church in Thessalonica is is a persecuted church. They're going through a very difficult time. And Paul wrote to them earlier in this letter, and we studied it, in chapter two to that church. He says, you also suffered the same sufferings. And at that point, these people, as they're following the Lord, for some of them, they're losing their jobs. For some, they're having their homes confiscated. For some, they've even lost their lives for their faith. And it's a little bit discouraging, you might say. So Paul says, when they're going through that, you need to be encouraging them, encouraging them as as they go through. So you've got to have that hard conversation with the spiritually disobedient. You need to be encouraging those who are going through it. We saw Carol's testimony today. It's going through it. It's our opportunity as a congregation to make sure that we're there to encourage as she, she goes through this time. And then number three, he says, he says in verse 14, he says, But you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and then it says, Help the weak. Help the weak. Now, that, that word is, is translated a number of different ways. I like the literal translation. The literal translation, I put that on your outline. It just says to support the infirmed. Um, the, the idea is it's to meet the physical needs. The weak there is, is the idea is you're going through a difficult time Economically, physically. And uh, it's also interesting here that Paul doesn't say, encourage them as they face those physical needs. He says, help them, help them. So you have to have the conversation with those who are spiritually disobedient as brethren. You have to be encouraging those who are going through it. You've got to be tapped into the church enough to know that somebody's going through it. And then it says to help those who are weak, which can be a physical, it can be economic, a difficult time. So you've, you've got to help them. But then it says in verse 14, um, verse 13, actually, I'm sorry, verse 14, the very last line of that, he says, be patient with everyone. So I, I love that because he goes, now, as it relates to the pastor, he says, here's how you have to be. Then he goes, could you just live in peace with them?" You know, just don't make their lives miserable. Then he says, now, as we, as we talk about our relationship with one another, you know, encourage and all that, and he goes, could, could you just be patient with people? You see, the reality is, as believers, sometimes, if we're not careful, we think we know what's going on in somebody else's life. And we jump, at times, to the worst possible interpretation and conclusion. So if somebody is going through a hard time economically, Paul says, could you just be patient because you don't know what they're going through. You don't have the whole story. Um, If if they're going through a place where they're discouraged, you know, in the heart, you might have to say, just suck it up and deal with it. Well, you're not really walking through their shoes. So as a believer, as brethren, could, could you be patient with people? Because the truth of the matter is, most people are just trying to figure it out. They're just trying to figure it out. Do you agree with that? Aren't you trying to figure it out? absolutely. And and if we're not careful, we assess other people's character and what they're going through. And and sometimes that's in the worst possible uh, way. So Paul says, could you just be patient with other believers? And so he writes that to the brethren, to the brethren. So far, so good. Then in verse 15, he says, see to it that no one repays another, underline another, with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another, underline one another, and for all people, underline all people. Now, here's what you need to know about this. The one another are people within the church, people within the church, uh, believers, brethren. Um, And when it says at the very end of it, in verse 15, he says, and for all people, those would be people outside the church. So for those inside the church, Paul says, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. Now, why does Paul feel like he needs to say that to believers inside the church? Because sometimes some believer is going to hurt you really bad. And everything inside of you is going to want to stick it to them. All right, I'm alone in this, right? (laughs) And Paul says, you know what? You don't repay one another with evil for evil inside the congregation. You don't do that. If they do that, that's what they do. But you're a believer, you're brethren, and you still have to walk with the Lord and represent him. So you don't do that. But then he says, and he says, do what's good for all people. Why does he say that? Because the world's watching, aren't they? You ever messed up at work and they say, oh, you call yourself a... Yeah, they're quick about that, aren't they? Well, you call yourself a jerk, so how about, how about that? So. <laughs> but but the world is watching, the world is watching and they're looking for the opportunity for you to blow your testimony And when they see believers, harming believers, accusing, attacking, they use that. So he says, so you need to do what's good for people within and be careful because there's a reputation that you have on the outside. Make sense? So he says, so first, the first thing that we do as believers in the congregation is towards the pastors, the leaders, however that church, a church would be structured, the second part would be believer to believer as we relate to one another, the brethren within the congregation. And that's how we're, we're to be. And again, in order to do that, you have to be tapped into a specific church because you simply aren't going to do that to the believer on the street, somebody within the church. Then he goes to the next relationship, and the next relationship is going to be towards corporate worship. Now, we're going to look at some things in this that, When we first read it, we think, well, that just pertains to me and my personal and private walk with the Lord. And it certainly does. But there are some um, very great scholars who point to this passage as being how we, uh, meaning how we relate to one another as it relates to the corporate worship when we all come together as believers. And there's some specific reasons why they point to that. And uh, one of the reasons would be because it talks about things in a a corporate way. For instance, if you just glance down at verse 20, it's going to talk about do not despise prophetic utterances. Prophetic utterances aren't things that happen privately in our walk with the Lord. Those are things that happen when the the body comes together. Uh, In um, verse 26, it's going to talk about um, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. It's not something that, you know, you've got to be kind of around other believers, you know. And then you've got in verse 27, he says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read uh, in, in the presence of all the brethren. So the idea is when you come together, do this. So some people hold that this is, in this place, an order for a church service. And I believe that that to be true. I also hold that there are some things here that are just that are also for us as we privately live out our lives. So, uh that part would be clear, but as it relates to a church service, I thought that we would explore that a little bit today. So uh, let's let's look at that. It begins, you know, you have the first part, which is how you relate to the leadership, then how we relate to one another, and then how we relate as we come together. What do we do? Verse sixteen, it begins, and he says, "Rejoice always." Now that's something that that we've heard, and we would say, "Well, we should be going around and and just be rejoicing all the time." Well, that that's true. But as far as it being the opening possibly of a church service is very intriguing, especially if you consider the meaning of the word in the original language. I put the definition there on your outline. And it says the word rejoice there, uh, Cairo, to be cheerful, calmly happy, or well off. But I want you to underline this part, especially as a salutation on meeting or parting. This was a very common salutation in the early church and in that first century. As you would open up a service, you would just say that. That would be the opening of the service in such a way like if we opened the service and we said, hey, welcome to Calvary. We're going to stand and worship. That would be our opening. So some Bible scholars see this as an opening to the service. You might not be convinced, but there's some interesting things in this. Then it goes on in verse 17. It says, now pray without ceasing. Now, certainly we should all be praying without ce- ceasing. My particular um, habit that I do is as I go through the day, I have an ongoing conversation with the Lord constantly. I'm not like you. I need that ongoing conversation with the Lord. and uh, That's just, just how I stay connected. And I do believe when it says pray without ceasing, that each and every one of us needs to have that, that time that we are praying alone. But as it relates to the church service in the early church, they, they would pray at the beginning of their service. And let me ask you a question. If, if this is, in fact, and we'll see as we go, relating to the church service, when you come to church, have you already been praying that God would do something incredible in this service? Have you been praying that, that God's going to speak to you and to other people Have we been praying that the Lord would reveal some things, that God would be changing some lives? Have we been doing that? So Paul says, let's make sure that as we come to church, we're praying. And that praying during the service needs to be without ceasing. So tuck that away. We'll see as we go. Then verse 18, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We look at that verse, and certainly there's that personal application that no matter what we face in life, in life we're, we're thanking God. But there is another application, and some see this as just the progression of the church service as it goes. You, there's the greeting, there's the praying, and then there's the thanking God in all things, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, now why, why is that? When it says in everything, give thanks... Paul will elaborate more on this in Hebrews chapter 13. Paul says this, there in your outline, he says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, and he says, this is what that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So, praise is thanking God. It's giving thanksgiving to God. And Paul says that that fruit, it's the fruit of our lips, which means it's something that we do out loud, something that we do out loud. And he says to offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. And the reason that he says it's a sacrifice of praise is because some of us, even as believers, might say, you know, I'm not really a praiser. I'm not really a worshiper, or a thanker, I, I, I don't. It's just not really part of my DNA. I know some people; they're just thinkers and worshipers and praisers, and they love to do that. But it's just not my thing. If if I were to come to you and say, you know, as a believer, the Bible says that we are to share, and somebody were to say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a sharer. Kind of, yeah, just kind of. Take care of me. I'm, I'm a little selfish, actually, and, and, uh, but so that whole sharing thing doesn't apply to me. Would we accept that? That's where you say no. <laughs> but, be, because that's just what you do as a believer, right? And, and then if, if we were to say, you know, that whole part where it says, you know, do good to people. Remember we talked about do good to people in the church, do good to people outside the church. If somebody were to say, you know, I'm not really a do-good person. You know, I'm a Christian, but I, just, I don't do good. I don't think that applies to me. Would we accept that as a valid excuse? Absolutely not. Paul says, as it relates to thanking and praising God, you do this as a sacrifice, not because you're wired for it, but because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, now here's why this is so important. Um, God calls us to praise him because of what it does in our life and also because it blesses the Lord which means that when I come to worship, it's not about the style of music because the worship is not for me. We're not worshiping me. I don't know if you know this. It's our time to worship God. So if I go to a church and they stand up and they say, let us turn in our hymnal to page 375 and we're going to sing, I open the 375 and I go for it. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing, you know, I just go for it. Now, the reason that I do this is because it might not be my style, but we're not worshiping me. It's my opportunity to express my love for Jesus. If I go to a church and it's rap and, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus is Lord, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm going for it. Now here, here's why, here's why it might not be my particular uh, style of worship, but we're not worshiping me. We're not worshiping me. We're worshiping him. And the style is irrelevant. If you go to church, you go, I don't like the music. I don't like it. I I just, here's why. Because somewhere along the way, you think that the music is for you. And that we're doing the music for you. It's going to hurt your feelings. We're not worshiping you. We like you. (laughs) We don't worship you. We worship him. Let's don't confuse that, okay? So you can worship in any style of music. If it's quiet, if it's organ, if it's loud, it doesn't matter. You're singing to Jesus. If you go in and you say, I can't worship. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's a heart thing. You've got to do that. Well, I'm off my notes, which is always scary. So, <laughs> and another thing. I just I'm meaning to say it. All right. So so how important is this? How important is this? I want you to write this down, that, that the Bible calls us to praise the Lord over 2,000 times in the Bible. You know, in the Old Testament, it tells us not to kill people about three times, but it tells us to praise the Lord over 2,000 times. Apparently, this is very important to the Lord. The Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So the Bible teaches that God does something when you and I begin to worship God. For instance, a verse that we're all familiar with in Isaiah, it says there in your outline, every stroke that the Lord lays on them with his punishing rod will be to the music of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Now here's what that means. You come in here and you have the weight of the world on you and you begin to praise God whether it's your style or it's not your style. You go to any church and you begin to praise God, not because you love the style, but because you love Jesus. And you begin to worship him. And all of a sudden, the Bible, what he says, kicks in. And it says, every stroke that the Lord lays on them. Who's the them? Well, somebody he's doing battle with on your behalf. But he does that to the tune of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Now, if God smacks somebody in the head with his arm, do you think it hurts? Absolutely. Which is why some of us have walked in here, and we've been carrying the weight of the world. We begin to worship him, and all of a sudden, we feel that load begin to lift. And if you don't worship him, you don't experience that. And if you haven't experienced that, I encourage you to do that. God goes to battle on your behalf, spiritually speaking, when you worship and you begin to praise him. Okay? Now, so he says, he says here in verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is will of, the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Then Paul needs to stop and say there in the church service. Now, don't quench the Spirit. Don't do that. It's the next verse. Why did Paul feel like he needed to put that right there? Because he attaches that to thanking God, the praising of God. Because Paul knows that there would be some people who would come into the church service and they'd say, I'm not doing that. Not what I'm doing. And Paul says, whatever you do, don't quench the spirit. The word quench there is the word that's used to take water and pour on a fire to put it out. Apparently, quenching the spirit is attached to not being thankful to God, apparently in the church service and certainly privately, but but it can quench the spirit of what God wants to do in the church service. Now, Paul also talks about people who profess to be believers, but they don't praise, they don't thank, they don't worship. In the book of Romans, I put it there in your outline, it says this, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And then as a result, here's where it leads, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools. There is an attachment to your praising, to our praising, or our not praising, which leads us in two very different paths. One keeps us connected as we give thanks. He goes to the battle we read. And there's another where somebody who claims to know God, but they won't worship. Uh, may, for them, maybe it's all about them in the worship, but they don't. And it leads somewhere, and ultimately it leads to a confusion and darkness. That makes sense? So Paul says, okay, now we've done that. We've entered the service, rejoice always. We're praying God, what do you want to do in the service? We're giving thanks in the service. We've prepared ourselves for what God wants to do next. See, the first part was our directing our attention to God, and as we do that, God prepares our heart, and now it's God directing what he wants to do in our lives. So notice the very next verse. It says, do not despise prophetic utterances. What's he saying? Write this down. Be ready to receive the message. Everything up to this point was going, our speaking to God. From this point on, it's going to be God speaking to us. It's coming down. So we need to be ready to receive that message. Now, when we tend to think about prophecy, if you're like me and I've been around the church block, you know, you go to these conferences and they got the prophecy conference and somebody stands up and says, the Lord has told me, and you know, on and on about stuff like that. Um, have you been to places like that? I, I don't think they're really all that true, but they are a lot of fun. So anyways, story for another day. But, you know, go with it. No, don't. But um, we are not going to use this service. Okay, so delete that from the table. But, but the idea is that in the Bible, it talks about what prophecy really is. In 1 Corinthians, as it illuminates the gifts, it says this. There in your outline, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, building you up, and for exhortation, which is get going, let's get going, and for consolation, you're having a hard time, you know, it's to bring comfort. In the first church, when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, they don't have a Bible. Paul's writing it as as it goes, so they don't have that. So what they had at that time was they they had men who were, were praying, and the Holy Spirit was supernaturally giving the message and bringing clarification. You and I, as we have the Bible, more often than not, what God uses is simply His Word to encouraged to give exhortation, consolation. That's, that's what he's using. I do believe that there are times when God will speak very specifically, but for the most part, it's it's the word of God as we do that. This, this is prophecy. Now, some people in that first church, like when Paul would speak, he would write and that became scripture. It was just scripture. But some people gave prophecies And Paul goes to the next verse as they give the message and he says in verse um, 21, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. The the, the idea is is that when Paul wrote, that was prophecy, that was scripture. Some people are going to say some things and the way that you know that it's true or not true, you're going to have to examine it. How do you examine it? You go to God's word and you find out if it's true or not. God never contradicts his word. Make sense? So when we teach the Bible, that's what we do. Well, going on. Verse 22, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Those who see that as just how we live our private life, obviously that that's very um, um, uh, obvious. Uh, as part of the church service, if this is a description for the church service, it means that you don't do things in a church service under the guise of it being the Holy Spirit but it's not really. Uh, And each person has to discern what that is. Verse 23, he goes on and he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Now just let me stop right there. Body, soul, spirit. You and I are created in the image of God. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a trinity being created in the image of God. God would also then create you in his image as a trinity body, soul, spirit. Uh, As many of you know, my master's degree is in psychology, learned a lot of great tools. The problem is that psychology and the theories of man can never deal with the issues of the spirit. They they can only deal with the symptoms, which is usually guilt. And what we really need spiritually is we need forgiveness, which only God can deal with. So you see this trinity, God, uh, body, soul, and spirit. Then he goes on and he says um, that he may uh, preserve complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Underline that. Then Paul feels the need to say, faithful is he who calls you. If you can believe that Jesus called you and you are saved, he says, he will also bring it to pass. What is it that he's going to bring to pass? He says, if you can believe that Jesus saved you and called you, he will also bring it to pass. What is the it that he brings to pass? It's the last line of the verse you just underlined. The last line is, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can believe that Jesus called you, you can believe that Jesus is coming back for you, and I believe very soon. He goes on to say in verse 25, Brethren, pray for us. question we need to evaluate. Do you have that time? Um, I know I sound very preachy today. I don't normally sound preachy if you're new today but I sound preacher today and I'm kind of having fun with it. So so just (laughs) one of the most important things you can ever do in your life is to determine that you will build your life on spending time alone with God every single day. In Mark 1.35, it says, it's not on your outline, it just says early in the morning, a great while before it was light, Jesus arose and went to a solitary place And was praying there. As you go through the New Testament, you find Jesus getting away to pray all the time. He began his day in prayer. If Jesus, who had no sin nature, didn't deal with the stuff, you might say that you and I deal with that that bent towards sin. If he felt that in order for him to accomplish his purpose in life, that he needed to begin his day spending time with this Heavenly Father, how much more? do you and I need to build our lives on spending time with our Heavenly Father? At Calvary, we teach you that the Lord is always first. He's first in your finances. We teach that. But we also teach that the Lord is first in your time. You don't want to give God the time that you have left over. You want to give God the first of your time and allow Him to, in that time, grow you in his in your relationship with him. Until you settle that, until you settle that, you're going to have a very difficult time walking in what many believers call the victory because that's where you find it. In that time, Paul says, pray for us. There are things that we just need to be praying about consistently, at times corporately, but continually. Okay? Okay, let's go on. Verse 26, he says, Greet the brethren with a holy kiss. In the Middle East then and now, the way that you greeted people was simply to kiss them. Many of you know in 2006, our church took a trip to Israel. And in that time, it was led by Bobby Michaels. Many of you remember Bobby. And, uh, Bobby taught me that this is Middle Eastern stuff and you do it or you offend people, which is very freaky for me because we're big handshakers, right? And when I hug people, especially guys, I do 3 pats, you know, I'm not gay, that sort of thing. But <laughs> it's what it stands for. But when you go to the Middle East, <laughs> whole different deal. So you, you kiss, but the way that you do it is when you walk up to somebody, it's it's like one two, three, and the way that you kiss, for those of you who are there, you'll, you'll uh, corroborate this, you have you make the sound, you go, <laughs> <laughs> it's very loud, everybody do that, <laughs> okay, so, yeah, there you go, so, now, so, Bobby would be behind me, and he'd be going, three times, Dan, three times, so it's very awkward for me, because I'm like, mm, mm, okay, we're done, but, but that's not what you do, because if, if you don't go, if you go two, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very unfriendly, you know, you don't go four, because it's very flirtatious, it's three, you want to know that, Especially in the Middle East, you don't want to get that wrong. So, so, so just so you know that. But, so they would do that. That's just how they greeted one another when they came to church. Um, many singles groups try to use this as a validation for greeting in, in their ministry, which would be appropriate. But it says, "Brethren, you know, greet the brethren." And you know, as a brethren, greeting the brethren with a kiss is. A little weird. So I think it would be better if it said greet the sister," but it doesn't. So it just, all right, that one didn't work. Okay, verse, verse 27, he says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The idea is that when the church comes together, stand up and read it to the congregation because they need to hear it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And with that, we conclude 1 Thessalonians. And we wrap up and we'll pick up in 2 Thessalonians probably next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the life of this church and all that you want to do and all that you want to accomplish. We thank you, Lord, for this week, 160 children coming through these doors. And Lord, we pray that there would be incredible effectiveness as the people from this congregation minister. And Lord, we pray that eyes would be open. We pray, God, that that as we study this passage, that we would see as believers, it's not a salad bar. We don't pick and choose. This is what it means to be a believer. Lord, help us to grow into the picture that you have for us as we follow you. God, we bring you all these things, and I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.